on Wednesday last week in the afternoon, which was exactly 87 hours ago, I worked it out, I got a call from Richard, and he asked if I'd be willing to speak in this slot on a Sunday morning. Now, if you know me, you know that there are a few adjectives that do not describe my personality. I am not spontaneous. I do not take any risks at all, ever. And so to prepare something to feel as if it was good enough for you this morning, 87 hours was, was definitely not enough. In fact, 87 hours was probably not enough even for me to think about what I was gonna serve you for lunch if you had come to my home. And as I hung up the phone after giving a 99.9% commitment, I was filled with a sense of, what have I done? It's not gonna be good enough. And I just heard that gentle prodding, that voice that has been part of my journey for so many years now. It doesn't have to be perfect for it to be good enough. And so I'm standing here and I feel as if I'm literally walking on water. Um, and when you walk on water, you sometimes see the storm instead of listening to the voice. And in exactly the same way that we don't need perfect pastors, perfect churches, perfect colleagues, perfect bosses, perfect spouses, perfect parents, perfect children, perfect colleagues, perfect friends, because God is a God of grace and God is a God of mercy. And when we keep our eyes on Him and His voice and allow that to gently move us, saying, it is enough, you are enough because I am enough. That is what enables us to do the scary things. And sometimes our scary things are our relationships. And that's what I'm gonna be speaking about this morning. The title is Cultivating Healthy Relationships. And the first thing that I quickly wanna mention is this word cultivating. A while back, our son spent some time in Africa and he went into farms and he had a look at the impact of industrial crops on food supply. That's what he did. And he did some research in that area. And he came home each time with these incredible photographs and wonderful stories about the farmers that he met. And I got quite inspired, and I thought I too could be a subsistence farmer. I needed to do my bit for the planet and, and put something back into the land rather than always taking from Woolworths. And so, <laughs> and so I did a bit of a Google search. I mean, how difficult can it be? And I popped up to the local nursery and, and I got some wonderful one-source advice on how to plant some things, and I bought these lovely seedlings. Some of the seedlings I chose because they look pretty, um, which was should have been my first lesson in cultivating. But I brought them all home, and I had a ton of fertilizer as well because I know that you need to really prepare the soil well. And I planted all these beautiful seedlings in these lovely straight rows in a piece of land that really nothing had ever grown there before, which should have been another lesson for me. But nonetheless, I had great hope, and I was going to be patient, I told myself. 
And so every day, I went out into my garden to see what was happening, and things would sprout out, and I'd have something new, and I'd see the odd worm, and I'd pick it up, and I'd pay so much attention to what was going on in my garden, which is really much like relationships. You know, when they start, we're so interested, and we put all this effort in, and then when it kind of gets going, we sort of get over it, and not me, of course, but <laughs> maybe you. But some interesting things started happening in the garden, and I think my biggest lesson was from my pumpkin seedlings. Pumpkin seedlings have very pretty leaves, and they sprout up very quickly, and they grow. And a friend of mine mentioned to me that I might need to cut things back in order to get pumpkins. But everything looked so good that I just didn't want to touch it. And I had these beautiful flowers and, and these beautiful leaves, and it was making such a good display that I just thought, I'll let it happen on its own. That is a good lesson not to apply to relationships. You see, relationships happen whether we pay attention to them or not. But cultivating a relationship is a completely different thing. Cultivating takes knowledge, it takes consistency, it takes a lot of hard work, and sometimes it takes doing what might feel a little bit uncomfortable and a little bit what feels unnatural, and it might not even look so pretty sometimes. And yet that's actually what makes our relationships grow. So hang with me for the next 30 minutes, or 25 minutes or so, as I bring some nuggets that I've learned through the years from experts about relationships, about what they think will work. And I think what's important to mention is 30 minutes on a Sunday morning is much like one Google search. You know, it's, it's not gonna, it, it might inspire you to do something, but it certainly is not gonna help you do the hard work. And so I hope more than anything that this little 50, 20 minute thing will be something that will help you get inspired to go out and become an expert in your relationships and to learn about it on your own. We've been doing relationships since the very beginning of time. In fact, since God created Adam and Eve, they have been in a relationship with each other. The Bible, fortunately, gives us some really important information about relationships. And some of the stories that we see in Scripture are often about what not to do. And then there's a lot of stuff about what we can do. And I want to show you a story that happened in Genesis chapter 3. Let me give you the setting. God created heaven and earth, and he made man. And then he looked around and he thought, there really needs to be something more. No, it wasn't like that at all. Anyway, he looked around and he thought, Adam needs a helpmeet. And so he created woman, and he took woman out of Adam, and he made woman, and he gave her to Adam. And Adam was like, some of the scholars that um, talk about the scripture say that Adam's description of Eve was literally, wow. And ladies, we've been wowing ever since, haven't we? <laughs> And so in this perfect place, with this perfect couple, in a perfect environment, with a perfect God that visited them all the time, they were literally set up 
for everything good. And let's read the story in Genesis chapter three and have a look with me if you can see a relationship pattern, a communication pattern that Adam and Eve got caught into that we've been doing ever since. Genesis chapter three, ha, there it is. <clears throat> now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat of the fruit in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or else you will surely die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and it was pleasing to the eyes, like a McDonald's burger, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. Then the eyes of them both were opened, and they realized that they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, but they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord said to man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me. She gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. And I see some of you are having an epiphany as you read this. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. In relationships, we talk about patterns of communication and often we get into negative patterns or habits. And can you see the obvious trend here? The man says, the woman you put here with me, I'm not quite sure here if Adam is blaming the woman or God. And then, the, and then Eve says, the serpent deceives me. And here's what this might have looked like in a cartoon format. And as the picture depicts, I think what's quite interesting about the scenario is that each one of them was actually just stating the facts. And yet, this is the first example of the blame game beginning. And unfortunately, we have been playing the blame game ever since. Now there's a number of reasons why the blame game feels quite comfortable for us. The first one is that if I am putting attention on someone else, then I don't have to take responsibility for what I'm doing. You see, if I can blame a situation or another person, then I don't have to take ownership. And blaming is much easier for me than taking ownership because if I take ownership, it means that I have to do something to change. The other reason why we use the blame game is because sometimes the best form of defense is a counterattack. And so blaming works really well. And we use it in our toolkit of ammunition to get back in order to protect ourselves. The problem with the blame game is that no one ever wins. And if we want to have good, healthy relationships, we need to have 
a winning strategy. So what does a winning strategy look like? Well, this is what I think are parts of a winning strategy. The first one is that we need to cultivate faith and work through love. This, is, this concept is taken from Galatians chapter five and verse six, and I'm gonna show you some verses just now. It is also an approach that is used as a counseling technique in a, in a, the, in a, um, a therapy called hope-focused approach. And in it, they use this verse as the very foundation of all of their counseling. And they say that when you're working with a couple, you need to keep hold of these three things, faith, work, and love. If you look at Galatians 5 verse 6, I've used three different translations here to try and drive home the point. And in the first one, in the New King James Version, it says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails much, but faith working through love. And in the Amplified it says, for if we are in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, only faith activated and energized and expressed and working through love. And then in the message translation, which I got very excited when I saw this one, it says, for in Christ Jesus, neither our most conscientious religion nor disregard of religion amounts to anything. What matters most, what matters is something far more interior, faith expressed in love. Now, whenever we read scripture, I remember being told by some of the theology professors that you really need to look at the context of the scripture that you're reading and the culture of the time in order to get the best understanding of it. Now, what's interesting in this scripture is that Paul was writing a letter to the Galatians. And the context of the time was they were struggling with a lot of information and a lot of different teachings. And Paul was trying to get a concept across to them that even with all this information available to you, there's one thing that is the most important thing, that one thing. And he was saying that this one thing that is the most important thing is faith working itself through love. So what does that look like in relationships? Because if it's the most important thing when dealing with stuff, we need to actually understand what that means when it comes to our relationships. Well, faith we know in Hebrews chapter 11 is the essence of things hoped for, I have to find it, the essence of things hoped for and the substance of things not seen. Faith is what we call the believing part of the relationship. If you don't believe for something, if you can't have a vision that something can happen in your relationship, what are the chances that you're gonna be able to do the work in order to bring it? If you've lost hope of something, if you cannot imagine that your relationship can be good, how are you going to begin to take the steps and have the faith and step out on the water in order to bring it into being. When we lose hope that something can happen, we lose part of the very thing that brings it into being. And what's interesting today is within our culture and all the teachings and all the information that is available to us, I wonder sometimes if we don't start doubting 
that we are, we are capable and competent of loving well, of loving with that type of godly love that is expected of us in order for relationships to go well. I wonder if we still believe that we are competent and capable of things like mercy and grace and fidelity and making our marriages and our relationships work. Because when Paul wrote to the Galatians, he said, out of all of these things, all this information, everything that you hear, faith counts, work counts, and love counts. So what is work? Well, I think what's quite important to remember about work is work is not me working on someone else in my relationship. You see, it's really easy for me to work on my husband in order for him to do what needs to be done in order for our relationship be good, to be good. But work, the work part of a relationship is me working on me and saying, what am I bringing to this relationship? What, I, what can I do to change my character to make this relationship good? Danny Silk, in his book, Keep Your Love On, puts it like this, and he says, on a good day, I'm in charge of me. I'm responsible for my attitudes, for my feelings, and for my behavior. And when I work on changing me, and I add that to the relationship with no excuses, our relationships have a better chance of being a little bit better. The last one is love. And what is love? Love is that warm bond that every relationship needs. It is the crying of the human heart. It is that desire to feel safe, to be in relationship, to have somebody on our team to partner with and to know that no matter what we do, we will always be loved. And so now take a minute and think, how much faith do you have for some of those relationships. Maybe there's a relationship that you have that has gone bad. How much faith do you have that it can be good again? How much work are you doing? If you compare the amount of work that you do to make money every month, how much work do you do on that relationship to make it better? How much of your time, your effort, your energy, your thoughts, your studying time do you invest in that? And then how much love are you showing? And if you want to know more about love, I suggest that you camp out in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Spend 20 minutes of every day for about 28 days and see what that scripture does to you as far as applying love in your life. And so the second point is to cultivate good character. In order to cultivate good relationships, we need to work on our character. This is the work part. And develop what, what I like to refer to as a virtuous life. Now, the word virtue is a very old-fashioned word. We don't hear virtue spoken about very much. I grew up in the Baptist church, and they talked a lot about virtues. It was a lot about learning about how to live a virtuous life, and I gained a lot from that information. But I want to warn you that as we look at this information, remember, the goal is not perfection. And sometimes when we start looking at what we need to do, we, we miss the point. You see, God loves us as we are, no matter what. These things are things that he wants us to step into because it's comfortable and it's a good fit and it adds to relationships and God loves relationships because he's the author of relationships. He's the creator of relationships and now he's given us some tools 
on how to do those relationships better. And one of the scriptures that I've chosen this morning is from Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 to 14. And I've taken this from the NIV. And it says this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, goodness, and patience. Bear with one another and forgive one another if you have any grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all of these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. The first thing that I love about this verse is that as God's chosen and holy and dearly loved people, we are then to put them on. Notice, we don't put them on in order to be holy and chosen and dearly loved. The holy, chosen, dearly loved part is done by God. He put that on, that was his work, and God is very good at his work. Once that is sorted, here are some things that he's got for us. And in some translations, it uses the word put on. Now put on is an interesting terminology for this, and sometimes it's useful to look at the Greek text. And what this means is the word put on is what's called the active continuous form, which means that it's something that we can be continuously doing. It's not a once-off act. And I don't know about you, but if I put on gentleness, kindness, patience, I sometimes lose them. I take them back off again, and then I need to put them on again, and that's really what the scripture means. The message translation says this, dress in the wardrobe that God has picked out for you. Now, I don't know about you, but if God's got this wardrobe picked out for me, I wanna be wearing what that is. This is good stuff. If he's picked it out for me, he knows that this is the perfect fit. This is the outfit that when I'm wearing it, things are gonna look good and they're gonna feel good and I'm gonna feel mm, so comfy in that stuff. The other thing is that we know about God's character is that if he's picked out and he's chosen something for us to do, he enables us to do it. So this is not an unattainable goal. This is something that he's picked out. He's already chosen us. We're dearly beloved. And then he says, with that, put this on. Look what I've got for you. Look how good this is gonna feel. Look how good this is gonna look on you because this works in our relationships, but it takes some action on our part. And I also think that one of the things that robs us from putting this on is that very first thing I spoke about, the blame game. You see, as long as I'm pointing a finger and saying, well, he's not doing it, I'll do it if he does it, or in this case, it's an exception. You don't know the situation I'm li living in. You don't know what my boss is like. You don't know what my spouse is like. I don't need to put this on. Nobody else is wearing this stuff. I'm gonna look like a fool. You see, the blame game we get caught into, and I think it robs us from so much in our relationships. And I think metaphorically speaking, perhaps, when we use the blame game, we land up wearing some pretty nasty fig leaves instead of what God's got for us. The last point, and I'm gonna end off with the story here, is that in order to have healthy relationships, we need to really cultivate an ability to receive good feedback. 
I was reading a book the other day about all the complications about feedback, and to sum it up in a nutshell, it really says this. It's as difficult to give good feedback as it is to receive good feedback. Feedback is hard. One of the reasons feedback is so difficult for human beings is that we have an inclination to lean towards remembering the negative. In other words, if I go to a job evaluation with you and you tell me a hundred amazing things about me and then you tell me three things that I should probably work on, I guarantee you I'm gonna come out of that meeting and I'm gonna remember the three things that I need to work on and I'm gonna ruminate on them and in 20 years time, I'll probably be able to tell you the three things that I need to work on. There are a lot of psychological and physiological explanations for this, believe it or not, but it is a part of natural human character unless we know differently. And so when we get feedback and when we give feedback, we generally go towards the negative, which is what makes feedback so dangerous. On the next slide, I wanted to put a danger sign on it. One of those big danger signs that says, proceed with caution. There are four things that we need to remember when we're giving or receiving feedback, and I'm hoping that it will come up. There we go. And if I could have put a danger sign and fitted it on, I would have. And so what I mean by that is go gently. If you decide to apply this, try and apply it with the Colossians chapter three. Put on all those things for many, many days, for a very long time before you go into this because those things are healthy and helpful, and this stuff is just a suggestion. But here we go on how to receive feedback. The first one is feedback needs to be specific and based on observable behavior. It is not based on conclusions drawn from the behavior. Let me give you a good example. When I say, when you're driving at 100 kilometers an hour in a 30 zone, I don't feel safe. That's good feedback. Good feedback is not, you're an idiot because of how you're driving. Can you see the difference? The second thing about feedback is it really needs to be timely. Sometimes we hold our feedback until we throw everything in, including the kitchen sink, and we just let the person have it. That is not good feedback. The third thing about feedback is it needs to be actionable. Make sure it's something that the person has control over. The color of your eyes scare me is not good feedback. <laughs> and then feedback needs to be positive. If you are giving positive feedback daily, all the time, and you are in a relationship of an environment of positive feedback, the chances are, one negative, good feedback, piece of information will settle on good ground. To end off this message, I want to tell you a story um, of a day that I received some very important feedback. And the thing about feedback is good feedback always hits you exactly where it hurts. Um, because when feedback is good, it's usually true. And sometimes truth is a little bit ouch in, in some places of us. And this feedback was good observable feedback. It was actionable and um, it was timely and it was very specific. And it was done by a four-year-old. So um, I think that there's hope for all of us. 
It was long ago and I was playing Barbies with our daughter. She was about four at the time and I don't know if you've ever played an extreme Barbie session. If you haven't, it might be very difficult for you to have a mental picture. But for you guys that haven't spent some time on the floor with Barbie dolls, there are lots of tiny accessories and little tiny earrings. And if you're that way inclined, Barbie has got lots of people to see and things to do. And as a result of it, a lot of different outfits to wear. And we had done this extreme session and there were clothes strewn all over the floor. And um, it was a good play afternoon. And Robin and I have always had this concept that we want our kids to learn to finish things. And so I started tidying up with her, and then I said to her, I'm gonna go and finish dinner to do this good parenting thing where she would be encouraged to finish the task on her own. And in about 15 minutes, I came upstairs, and um, I, I came to this beautiful, shiny room and this equally shiny face with sparkling eyes and so proud, and her eyes locked with mine. And I said, no. Poppets, I think we called her that at that time. I said, man, what a great job you've done. And then as my eyes darted over the room, as they tend to do, I noticed one little Barbie shoe under the chair. And I said to her, oops, you've missed one. And I remember those eyes in that moment, just this questioning look. And the little tears welled up. And she looked at me and she said, Mommy, how come you can't see all the shoes I've put away? Guys, that's good feedback. <laughs> but feedback hurts. You know, and there's some moments when we get feedback from people that we have an opportunity to see ourselves through the eyes of someone else. And that stuff's real, even though it's difficult. And there are many times that when we get feedback, we can have lots of different responses. We can offer a defense, we can point a finger, we can give a situation. But sometimes in certain moments, the only response ever worth giving is thank you for being brave enough to tell me you're right and I'm wrong and I'm gonna work on that. And tell me when it happens again. You see, feedback gives us an opportunity to see parts of ourselves that God wants us to see. And I believe that as parents, children are not looking for perfect parents, but they def desperately need honest ones. And they desperately need parents that are going to work on themselves to improve their character. And feedback is very helpful information. And so that's it from me this morning, three points and a poem like I usually do. And I hope that there's been a nugget here that you can take home with you, just something that will help you. Just apply one small thing to your relationships one day and at least to give you some hope.